going to look at John chapter 20. So have your Bibles, please turn with me to uh, the Gospel of John, and we'll look at uh, the entire chapter together. So John chapter 20. This chapter really does represent uh, the conclusion of the gospel. Chapter 21 is almost like an epilogue added to it uh, or an appendix. So this is, in a sense, sort of the climactic finish. John 20, beginning at verse 1. This is the Word of God. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started from the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now, Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. 
A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Well, it's Easter uh, Sunday, and so just before uh, we look at this text together, before I lead us in prayer, just take a moment individually to pray, uh, to pour your heart out before the Lord, and after just a moment or two, I'll lead us together in prayer. Lord, we would ask that this morning, by your Spirit, you will enable us to enter into uh, the reality of resurrection life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Pray that you'll enable us to understand what it is that Christ has done, what he has accomplished. Help us to believe and to know uh, the power of his risen life. Help us to see and to experience that the resurrection power comes as a response to atonement for sin that there is everlasting life for us because Jesus has paid the penalty for our sin. Lord, we thank you that he was willing to bear our guilt and our shame. We thank you that he was willing to bear our sin, that we would bear it no more ourselves, but that it would be taken to the cross where it would be done away with once and forever. Lord, we pray that you'll open your word. It's through your word that we know you. And so we ask that your spirit will open up uh, this text to us May these words be living and active uh, in our hearts, in our minds, to change who we are, uh, to help us see our Savior, the risen Lord, uh, to help us to have awe and also to be overjoyed, as the disciples were, in the realization that life has conquered death and your Son reigns forever. Be with us, we pray, for we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Now, for us, uh, having a history of Easter, it actually is impossible to imagine that in between time, there, 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 was, no, there was no terming the Friday of Jesus' death, Good Friday, for the disciples. That Friday 
was the realization of all of their very worst fears. In fact, that Friday when they saw Jesus die, rejected by the Jewish leaders, crucified by the Romans, under the wrath of God, transparently, because anyone who's hung on a tree is under God's curse according to the law. Everything that they, they never could have imagined took place. They didn't think Jesus was going to die. They had no category whatsoever for a Messiah. They believed that He was the Messiah. For the Messiah to come in and to be rejected and to suffer and to die in an agonizing way. And that's exactly what happened. Some of you are old enough, I won't, I won't ask who, but some of you are old enough to have seen the original Star Wars in theater. And of course, now when there's about 700 Star Wars movies, it's hard to remember that the first one was episode four, then episode five and episode six. The original Star Wars has that great scene where Princess Leia is trying to send a message, hiding it in the droid. It's not things about technology. You have to just sort of enter into the willful suspension of disbelief. That now with technology, you look back at some of what was supposed to be technology then. You think people people who could achieve light speed and fly through the universe probably could have figured out text messaging without trying to sneak these things around in droids. Uh, But nonetheless, you remember the message is... Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi, you're my only hope. Everything hinges on this one person, this Jedi Master. But what they're going to discover is that there's a new hope. Because in the end, Obi-Wan is going to die. He'll become more powerful than you could ever imagine. Yes, 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 we understand. Spoiler alert. Uh, listen, if you haven't seen the movie yet, you're not likely to, okay? It's, it's not exactly new. Uh, but you work through this, and, and all of a sudden, Obi-Wan Kenobi, help me, you're my only hope. But he's not. You can think of Narnia, Aslan. How can Aslan be put to death on the stone table? The stone table, of course, representing the Mosaic law, tablets of stone. And when Aslan comes back to life, that stone table cracks, symbolizing the the breaking of the law's power over us. But how can Aslan die? Think of the Lord of the Rings, you know, Frodo and Sam at Mount Doom. What would happen if Gollum had actually killed them both right at the edge of that abyss of fire? What if the knight in shining armor comes into the story only to be slain by a dragon before your eyes? All of that literary and movie magic, it all pales in comparison to the real-life horror the disciples felt when the Messiah died in front of their eyes. It was not possible. Jesus of Nazareth You are our only hope. And there he is on the cross. There he is dying, killed by the same group of people, the disciples were sure he had come to conquer. 
rejected by the same leaders, the disciples were sure that he had come sort of to take his head, to take his position of headship, to be recognized. All of their hopes, their living hope, not in terms of entering into a movie, not in terms of entering into literature, not in terms of entering into fantasy, but in real life, they had given up everything in life to follow him. This was the fulfillment of all of Israel's hope and prophecy. This was all that they wanted. Everything they had put their life into was this man, their only hope. And now he's dead. And now he's buried. And the women come to the tomb and see that the stone has been removed from the entrance. He has actually been slain. She doesn't know what to do, so she runs to Simon Peter, the other disciple, and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb. We don't know where they have put him. In other words, there's just massive confusion. The empty tomb does not immediately make them think resurrection. The empty tomb is a confusing datum. The body's gone. Something's happened. Someone's moved him. That makes no sense, but it must have been the case. So Peter and the other disciple start for the tomb. They run. The other disciple runs faster than Peter, but stops at the tomb. Peter runs in, and he sees the strips of linen lying everywhere and and the face cloth off to the side. Now, this is not what a grave robber would do. Anyone moving the body is not going to unwrap the body. Anyone moving the body is going to grab the body as it is and take it out. So, something really strange is going on here. The body has been wrapped, they are unwrapped, the linen garments are off to the side. They're still there. The other disciple went in too and says, he saw and believed. However, verse 9, they still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. In other words, he believed the body was gone. He believed something had happened, but he still didn't comprehend it. Here on this first Easter morning... At dawn, the light is beginning to break, but they don't have full sight yet. Things are still shadowy. They still don't understand what's going on. Probably the arc narrative of their grief precludes it. That is, they have spent, don't think that Friday night they went home and said, well, I suppose that's the end of that. Let's have a good meal and a good night's sleep. Don't think that the next Saturday their thoughts were not preoccupied entirely with what had taken place. Some of you know what it's like to grieve. Some of you know what it's like to lose someone that you love very deeply. And and you know the sleeplessness, the anxiety, the restlessness, the loss of appetite, the general weakness. You know all of those things. That's the framework, that's the, that's the perspective, that's the reality of these disciples. Don't sanitize this. They're real people, probably shaking and trembling and, and sleep-deprived, uh, undernourished. Everything's a war of emotion, and they just don't understand exactly what's going on. Now, Mary stood outside the tomb crying as she wept. She bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying or why are you weeping? It's the same question Jesus will ask in verse 15. Woman, why are you crying? There's almost a, 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 
a veiled rebuke here, though, just slightly, sensitively. Woman, is this the right time to be crying? Why, why this response? This response is actually out of order with the reality that's before you. Why are you crying? There's, there's, there's no reason for it. They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they put him. She doesn't know who the they are. She doesn't know anything about this. All she knows is she wanted to honor the body of the person who was her only hope, the person that she loved more than anyone, the person who loved her more than anyone. Now it's gone. Then she turned and saw Jesus, but she did not realize it was Jesus. So he asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? She thought he was the gardener. Now, there is one school of interpretation, which I partly am attracted to, but I'm not, I think it's an over, it's potentially an overread. Some want to maintain that here, she mistakes him for the gardener in some sort of theological fulfillment of Christ being the second Adam. That is, the first Adam is a gardener in the Garden of Eden. Here, you have the last Adam, the fulfillment of this, the great gardener. And although I'd almost want to argue that that's true, that's a trajectory you can trace, it's probably a little bit more than what this text is saying here. After all, he's buried in a garden tomb. She probably just thinks he's the gardener. Now, if you want to run wild in terms of allegorical interpretation, uh, that's fine. But I doubt that this is actually John saying, her mistake proves he's the last Adam. That would be a bit much. Nonetheless, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Then Jesus said to her, Mary. In John 10... John tells us that Jesus, or Jesus tells us that he himself is the good shepherd. He knows his sheep. His sheep know his voice. He calls them each by name, and they follow him. And so here what you do have is you have the good shepherd calling his sheep by name, and that's when she recognizes who he is. She recognizes Jesus when Jesus speaks her name. She turned around. She turned toward him and cried out, Rabboni. She cries out, teacher. And you can see when Jesus says, do not hold on to him. You can see her, her moving towards him. In another text, she, she clasps at his feet. And, and he's saying, you know, don't touch me now. Or, or, don't hold on to me now. Uh, I, I, I know that, that in many ways you could stay, you could embrace me for hours and forever. But now's not the right time for that. Now, now yes, it's me. Yes. Yes, you can't contain it. Yes, it's too much. Yes, you love me. Yes, I love you. But there's a message to be taken. There's work to be done just yet because I have not yet ascended to the Father. That's where I'm going. I, 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 my path has been to the cross, to the tomb, and, and out of the tomb, and to the Father, but I haven't gone there just yet. So go instead, instead of holding me, which is what you want to do in your joy and in your love, in your relief, go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God 
and your God. And here, fascinatingly, what Jesus does is Jesus gives just a little bit of similarity and overlap and just a little bit of differentiation. I am going to go to my Father. He's my Father in a special way, but He's your Father too. I'm going to my God. He's my God in a special way in terms of my incarnation, my incarnate state, but He's your God too. It's not identical in terms of relationship. I go to my Father. I am His perfect Son, but you're also His sons by adoption. I go to my God. I go to the first person in the Trinity with whom I am one. He's your God too, not quite in the same way. Tell them that I am going to be going to the Father and God. So, Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that He had said these things to her, I have seen the Lord. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders. Now, notice that. They've been told that Jesus is alive, but they're still afraid. Now, lest we be too harsh, they have just seen Jesus killed. And so, they haven't met the risen Lord just yet themselves. And so, there is fear here for them. The doors are locked. They are afraid that as Jesus' inner circle, the authorities might be hunting for them too. The doors are locked for fear of the Jewish leaders. Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. It's the same thing he'll say in verse 21, peace be with you. Obviously, One of the things that Jesus is doing in this post-Easter resurrection appearance, one of the things that the resurrection is meant to do is the resurrection is meant to give us peace. Uh, Today, we remember that Jesus invites us to have peace. He invites us to have not just restful minds and quiet spirits. It's not just serenity. He invites us to have shalom. He invites us to have well-being, where where we can maximally flourish, where things are as they ought to be, where where every proportion finds its right balance point, where we can have health in, in every aspect of life, where everything that's multifaceted finds just the right way for every facet to align. This is the gardener inviting people back into Eden to come into the garden, to rest. Again, not rest necessarily in terms of absence of work, but to rest in the balance and the harmony that God Himself provides for you. Peace be with you. I have made things right. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. The disciples had mourned while the world rejoiced. In Jesus' upper room discourse, John 14 through 16, he says, listen, the world is going to rejoice while while you mourn. 
Do not worry, take heart, I have overcome the world. You will also rejoice when the world mourns. That's the trade-off. And so while the world rejoiced as Jesus died on Friday, and as His enemies celebrated their victory on Saturday, here it's the disciples who are overjoyed. The last word is not sorrow. Uh, The last word does not come sort of mediated at the end of Darth Vader's lightsaber. Uh, The last word does not come from the dragon that slays Galahad. The last word comes from the risen Christ. Peace be with you, and the response is joy. Not just joy, abundant, overflowing joy. They were overjoyed. They could not contain their joy. It burst out of them spontaneously. It flowed out of every pore of their being. It poured out of their eyes and out of their hearts and out of their lips as they just gathered together, murmuring and and not being able to control themselves. What were they even saying? What were they doing? What was happening? There He was, the risen Lord, the slain knight raised to life. Someone so pure and good and perfect, they conquered death by their death. They were overjoyed. They might have thrown their arms around Jesus. They might have thrown their arms around each other. They might have lifted each other's feet off the ground. They were overjoyed. Again. Jesus said to them, peace be with you. The message of resurrection wholeness and health brings about a spontaneous eruption of joy. And so Jesus reaffirms, yes, as happy as you are in this moment, there will be difficult times ahead. Your state of peace and rest that I give you is not predicated on your emotional response. You won't always be experiencing this euphoric joy, but you'll still have peace. You'll still be able to rest. Right now, it's, it's a babbling, rushing torrent of water, but I give you deep waters that can't easily be disturbed. Everything's okay. Everything's okay today because Jesus Christ is raised to life. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. There's something for you to ride out to. There's a task for you. There's a job for you. But you can't do it on your own. God gives you peace through Jesus. And that can make you filled with joy, overflowing abundant joy. But the job He calls you to is something beyond your strength. And that's one of the things that we need to do more often. We need to simply acknowledge that we are not strong enough for what God calls us to do. We actually can't do it, which is why Jesus gives us what we need to empower us beyond our natural ability. With that, He breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. 
what transforms the disciples from people cowering in this room with the door locked for fear of the Jewish leaders to people who boldly proclaim the resurrection of Jesus Christ on the day of Pentecost is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And so God says, Jesus says, listen, I'm sending you out and you can't do it, so I'm giving you the Spirit. I'm giving you the Holy Spirit. I'm going to breathe the Spirit into you. The Spirit is going to come upon you. The Spirit will fill you and empower you because you are not strong enough for this. But I can give you the resources that you need. I can fill you with what you need. I can empower you with what you need to do what you could never do on your own. I am sending you, but I'm not sending you alone. I am sending you filled with the Holy Spirit. You go it on your own and you will fail. You are not superhuman. You're not perfect in your strength. But part of what makes us strong that Paul tells us is actually allowing the power of Christ to work in our weakness, to know that we are weak, to know that we will fail. To know that there is no temptation which seizes us except which is common to other people, but we also, like other common people, uh, do not have the natural, moral, and spiritual resources to succeed apart from the gift of God's sustaining grace. And so peace comes through Jesus and strength comes from the Spirit that Jesus gives. And so we don't look to ourselves, we look to Him. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Not because we have the power to absolve people of their sins, or not because we have the power to to make people pay the penalty of their own sins, but rather through the message of Jesus Christ, we give people, this is how you are saved. And if people will not receive that message, they reject Christ. They don't reject us. Here is the truth. Christ, when He died on that cross, willingly suffered to pay the penalty for our sins. He he died in our place, bearing all of our guilt, all of our sin, all of our shame. And in His death, He conquered death itself, and God raised Him from the dead. He lives forever. People who are united with Him, people who believe in Him. Perhaps, you know, today we talk about faith and belief, and sometimes in in our Western culture, those words seem to mean something like, you know, believe without evidence or something. Maybe a better way of bringing this across, it would be with the word trust. Trust Him. Trust Jesus. Entrust yourself to Him for both this life and through your death and for the life to come and eternity. And so the message the disciples go out with by the power of the Holy Spirit is, listen, here is how you have your sins forgiven. Trust in Jesus. If you will do that, you will be forgiven. You will be accepted. If you will not do that, you will not be forgiven. It's not that they have the power. It's that the message is of the truth. There is no other reality. This is just the way things are. And if you reject reality, then there's no hope for you whatsoever. Thomas, though, wasn't with them. The other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said, 
Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Now, Thomas is pretty unfairly characterized as the doubter. Um, he, he just happens to be the one who wasn't there. I mean, don't, don't think that all of the others who, who you know, if, or rather, don't think that if some of the others hadn't been there, that they would have had any sort of different response whatsoever. He just was the one who was out. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Now, this seems to be the standard post-resurrection greeting of Jesus in this text, doesn't it? Peace be with you. Peace be with you. Peace be with you. The repetition would almost seem to indicate that this is extraordinarily important. Also might indicate that... um, being in a locked room when you're afraid and having the post-resurrection Jesus just appear in your sight may be startling, right? So, you're sort of getting used to saying this, okay, just peace be with you, it's okay. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. In absolute sheer grace, Jesus condescends to Thomas's requests and demands. Thomas, you won't doubt, or sorry, you won't believe unless you see my hands, then, then let me show you my hands. It's whatever you need, Thomas, whatever you need to believe. You you need to touch my side, here it is. Thomas, whatever you need, whatever you need, just just stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. And personally, I wish with all of my heart that when we talked about Thomas in evangelical circles, we remembered him for that. Because this is probably the highest Christological confession in any of the Gospels, maybe in all of the New Testament. Direct address to Jesus, looking Jesus in the eyes, my Lord and my God. He is calling Jesus Lord and God. He is seeing that Jesus Himself is God. Jesus is God incarnate. He's the second person in the Trinity. He's the Son in human form. Thomas sees through the glorified risen body of Jesus, still bearing its wounds and scars, but in a glorified way, almost like badges of honor. Thomas looks at him and perceives the only person this can be is Yahweh. This is God. 
This is God in human flesh right here. To, to touch the nail-scarred hands is to touch the hands of God. To touch the side is to touch the side of God, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Now notice, he still believes. You've seen me and you believe. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. In other words, there's a greater blessing yet. And that blessing is for those who hear the message of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit are enabled to see and perceive its truth. Now, this connects to actually one of my favorite verses in the New Testament. Peter will write and say in his epistles, Peter will write and he will say to these believers who are persecuted and scattered who had never seen Jesus on earth, Peter, knowing that he has this massive advantage over them of having heard the voice of Jesus, he I'm not sure if you've ever thought of the incarnation. Like Jesus had, he had gesticulations. You know, he, there are ways that his eyes communicated when he spoke. If you were one of his disciples, you, you could hear him in the next room and you could pick out his voice. After spending long hours walking together around Palestine, you could... You could see him in the distance, and even while all of his features were, were hazy, you could tell by the cadence of his stride and his walk exactly who it was. And Peter, knowing that he can love Jesus in these special ways, he can remember Jesus. He, he remembers what Jesus looked like when he said certain things. Peter says, Though you have not seen him, you love Him. You can love Jesus as much as I do, even though you've never seen Him. Blessed are those who have not seen, but who entrust themselves to Christ. They see Him with the eyes of their heart. They have faith to know beyond physical sight, beyond tactile experience. They know Jesus even though they've never seen or touched Him. They've heard His voice even though not audibly. They know when the shepherd calls their name. John was so impressed by all of this that he wrote this gospel so that you would know Jesus. Verse 30 and 31 is sort of like the, the, the thesis of the gospel. Here's, here's the point of it, to remind you. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. On Good Friday, we talked about the significance of signs a little bit for John. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. These are written so that you will know, yes, he was crucified, but he is the Messiah. Yes, he was slain, but he is the knight. He is, though dead, the only hope. Because he's the Son of God. Because death's not the last word for him. It's just one, one part of the narrative. 
It's not the conclusion. It's the necessary crisis. It's the necessary catastrophe just before the perfect resolution. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. In the Good Shepherd passage in John 10, Jesus, of course, very famously says, I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly, or I've come that you may have life and have it to the full. Not just in this world. This world, there are an awful lot of struggles. Life in this world, yes, but far more life in the world to come. That's why Jesus, that's why John tells you these things. That's why Jesus records the signs, that's why John records the signs that Jesus did. That's why John takes the time to write this. That's what John wants you to know. What John wants you to know is that Jesus Christ was the Messiah who was crucified and who was resurrected to life. And 2,000 years later, the message is still going out. 2,000 years later, on a spot of the globe that no one in the first century in their culture could even imagine existed, with people with, with the oddest clothes they would have thought, no fashion sense whatsoever. Such strange people with their, with their strange language and their strange sounds and their strange customs. But even there, there's people who trust in Jesus Christ. 2,000 years later, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. By believing, you may have life in His name. Oh, may God help us. May God fill us by His Holy Spirit so that we may believe, not foolishly, but that we may believe in truth in what Christ has done for us. I was talking with um, Nathan Martin a little bit on Friday, and he came in and he said, He is risen. And you know what you're supposed to say to that, yes? What what do you say? (laughs) And that's why Jake's an assistant. Um, you're supposed to say, it's risen indeed. Of course, I had to say when Nathan came in and said, he is risen, the first thing I said to him was, well, not today. (laughs) We're getting there. We're a little out of sequence uh, in terms of our liturgical calendar. Today is the day when he's not risen. Today is the day when we celebrate his death or remember his death. Sunday's coming, right? Uh, we'll, We'll get there. And so to nurture my very anemic liturgical side, I'm not sure if you've noticed this, I'm not great with church calendar stuff. But if you believe... Today is a good day to affirm that corporately. So I am going to indulge in this Christian sloganeering because it's not Friday, it's Sunday. And I am going to close by saying He is risen and then you will say what you ought to say. (laughs) 
And if you don't know what that is, just be quiet. <laughs> and then our musicians will come and lead us in our closing song of praise, with which we ought to be, as we think about the Lord, overjoyed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. He is risen. <laughs>